we will get started. Please turn to Acts chapter 5. And we will start in verse 29. If you remember from last week, Jacob mentioned this in his recap as well, that God gives us the Holy Spirit so we have the power to repent from sin or the power to stop sinning, basically. And then we have the word so that we know how. We need to have the commandments and then the power to keep them. And the Holy Spirit is that power. Jesus came and died. And part of what he came and died and rose again to do was to give us his spirit. And Acts 5, if you start in verse 29, begins speaking of this. So we'll start in verse 29 of Acts 5, says, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Amen. Love that passage. Okay, let's start. We're going to focus on... Verse 31, God exalted Jesus to be prince and savior, to give two things. What are the two things he says to, that he would give? This verse, repentance and forgiveness. The third thing he says is in verse 32, that he gives the Holy Spirit. Most of the time, when you will hear preaching about what Jesus came to give us, the topic or the matter of the forgiveness of sins is what's emphasized most. And forgiveness is important. Without forgiveness, we couldn't be saved. But that's just one of the two things in this verse that, he, that it says he came to give. The first thing it says he came to give us was repentance. Now, number one that says repentance is something that has to be given by God. You can't do it on your own. That's why we need the Holy Spirit, which is what was covered last week. God gives you the Holy Spirit so you have the power to repent. That makes your repenting a gift from God. Amen. Amen? Amen? So, if you look at that first point on the sheet, I'll just read it off. Jesus came and died to give us the Holy Spirit, and with it, the ability to stop sinning. He gave you repentance. I don't know about you, but if God gives you repentance, I think it's because he knows that it will actually have an effect in your life. Otherwise, he wouldn't give it to you. Amen? Second sentence says, if Jesus came to take away our sins, how could we keep living in sin? That's a question I, 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 I've been asking myself this week. I said, if Jesus came to take away my sin, why do I keep living in it? Amen. Amen. All right. Go to uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 of the second scripture mentioned there. David? Yes. So up until that point in time, it was the... It was the sacrifices of bulls and birds and everything else that was supposed to be a compensation for sin, but there was nothing to help them stop sinning. Correct. Would be a fair statement? Yes. Yep. And yep. The, the Holy Spirit gives us the ability within ourselves, because we believe in God and, yeah. and His Son, yep. to repent of our sins and the strength yep. to stop. 
Yep. Amen. Absolutely. <laughs> right. That's the whole idea. The blood of bulls and goats could cover sin. Kevin mentioned compensate for it. It's a good term. But it could never take it away. Jesus came to take away our sins. And that's why we have greater accountability. If you believe the gospel, there's a much higher standard simply because you now have the power to do what people in the Old Testament never could. Yes. So in the, in the bulls and goats were the atonement, and Jesus is the propitiation. Yes. He yes. takes it away. Takes it away. He just doesn't cover it. Right. Exactly. Yep. So First John chapter 3, starting verse 5. Or let's do 4, actually. Starting 4. <laughs> Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Verse 5. You know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So I think it stands to reason that the closer we get to Christ, the less we will sin. Amen? That's the whole idea. Okay. We should have the ability to stop sinning because Christ and the Spirit has given us that ability. Second point on the sheet says, we are to repent of all sin and we should not condone any sin in our lives. And so I cited there 2 Corinthians 7, 1 and Hebrews 12, 1. We're going to look at those scriptures. So go to 2 Corinthians 7, 1 first. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse one it says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So we know, at least on the basis of Acts, Acts five thirty one. God granted us repentance, verse 32, he granted us the Spirit. Those are promises to us, especially the promise of the Spirit. You have the, the holiness of God living inside you, if you have the Holy Spirit. Having that promise, or these promises, beloved, here's what you do, here's your part to play. He says, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. He says all. Yes. The scripture? says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We're going to focus first on the key word all. Now, clarification. This does not mean this is something you are obligated to do. The moment you get saved, you have to kick all sin out of your life. We know that that doesn't happen. It's not how it works. But it is progressive or you could say continual. This is something we have to keep doing our whole lives. And the reason why it's important to notice the word all is because that will put us in a position where we will not condone anyone's sin or justify anyone's sin or say that anyone's sin is okay because all sin is repulsive to God. All sin, big or small, doesn't matter what it is. All of it is repulsive to God. And if we have a fear of God, 
like 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says we should have, that fear of God should make us want to, what it says, perfect holiness. Perfecting holiness means to simply to bring it to completion. In other words, we want to have a complete repentance in our lives. We don't want to repent of some things, but let other things slide. Right? Amen? So, now go to Hebrews 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We'll pause there. Lay aside every weight. Every weight. It doesn't say some things. Every weight. And the sin that so easily ensnares us. So you have 2 Corinthians 7 saying all filthiness, and you have Hebrews 12, 1 saying every weight. And the sin. Now, I'm just going to cover briefly what a weight is. Now, I think it's interesting that he says every weight, but then doesn't say every sin. He just says every weight and the sin. I think the reason why is because a weight, if you get rid of it before it becomes a sin, it wouldn't be a sin. Something oftentimes are weights before they're sins. This basically means something that might be slowing you down. It could start distracting you, per se. And if we let those things slide, then they can easily become sinful. So he says, lay aside every weight. In other words, don't let things go too far. We should get rid of what slows us down, what distracts us first. And of course, we include the and. If you know something is sinful, then we should repent of that as well. But don't think something is important to repent of after it has gotten too late or after it controls your life. We should want to kick things out early before they become that. And he refers to that as a weight. If it's slowing you down, it shouldn't be in your life. Slowing you down from your pursuit of God, your knowledge of the word, your ability to walk in holiness, your ability to be obedient to his word and his spirit, anything that's hindering that progress should be removed. We should want to get rid of those weights. So that's what he means when he, in Hebrews 12. One. Yes. In James 1, it talks about like a temptation. Mm-hmm. Conceives desire, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so Amen. this weight, is it like a desire that's being conceived? or? Great question. You could say that. Not, not Obviously, not every desire that a person has is wrong. But it can become wrong. And James chapter 1 there is trying to say that sin or temptation to sin only exists because there's an underlying desire there first. Desire is what conceives first. So that means we would have to know the difference between desires that are godly and desires that are not godly. And if you have a desire that is not godly, that means you're vulnerable to being tempted and then being snared in sin. So handle the desire issue first. 
And those desires often do slow us down because they're distracting. Think about all the times that you will try to read the word, try to worship, try to listen to a teaching, whatever, and your mind is stuck on something else or you're distracted by something else and it makes it difficult. That would be a desire that's getting in the way. In other words, a weight. So we have to be aware of those things. And if you're aware of a weight being a particular desire that is contrary to God, then address that. Yes. So David, in Galatians, Paul wrote to the Galatians in 6, 1, it says, if a man is overtaken with trespasses, you are spiritually restored such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Is that a form of a weight where you're coming along somebody else trying to help them and you're being tempted by what's going on in their life, in essence, trying to help them? Is that a weight? It can be. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Great question. We'll get to that later. David? Yes. A little context. We have to think about the fact that we, when we have something we're going to carry with us, we throw it in the seat in the car, we put it in the back in the trunk or whatever. These people had to carry virtually everything everywhere they went. You know, they were blessed to have a donkey, you know, and that was about it. And so a weight to them is a substantial thing. Mm -hmm. you know, it really resounds in their, their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And to get that off of them... They really had a great understanding of, of that. Mm -hmm. Yep, getting rid of weights. Anything that's heavy, that's slowing you down. And it says lay aside weights because you're running a race. Have you ever tried to run with ankle weights on? It's a good workout, <laughs> but it's not easy. Get rid of weights if you want to run well. Get rid of those weights. Verse 4, or sorry, point 4. The goal is to become spiritual, and then we're going to define that. Oh, excuse me. No, we didn't even go over three. Did we? We didn't even touch on three. Okay, three. <laughs> what makes us grow and mature in Christ is continual repentance from sin. It is sin that limits us and weighs us down. There's a lot of people, myself included, where we start to think, that maturing and growing is all encompassed in making sure you go to church on Sundays, get your daily Bible reading, get your verse of the day, pray before you go to bed, and if you're a member, bless your meals before you eat, right? And that's like the Christian obligation. You do that. That's feeding your faith. That's a start, but that's not ultimately maturity, and you're not really going to be growing without repentance, you're not going to be growing without repentance. And that repentance, repentance is what makes us grow and mature in Christ. And we're going to look at uh, scriptures that talk about that one moment. Uh, let's, now let's go to point four. The goal is to become spiritual, and that is the term that Galatians 6.1 uses, which we're going to get to in a moment as well. To be spiritual... Is two things. One is to understand spiritual things. The second is to live a life that's obedient to the Holy Spirit and obedient to the Word. We'll look at those scriptures next. But Dan, did you have a question? Yeah, I have a question. So, David, my question for you personally is what's something in your life that you've repented from that has been challenging to repent from, but you repented, and that I could use an example in my own life of what I should repent from? Uh, let's get to that later. Because there's a point that I'll address that later. Okay. 
So let's read 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2. Or, uh, let's actually start in verse 1. Start in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 2 is the main verse we'll look at, but we'll start on verse 1. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> until now you weren't able to receive it, but then he says, but actually now too, <laughs> you're still not able. <laughs> it's like he changed his mind mid-sentence. I never noticed that. It's really weird. All right, let's not to get distracted here. Verse 3. Yeah. Verse 3. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Okay, we'll pause there. I'm not going to read Hebrews 5.13 or 1 Corinthians 2.6 to you guys, because you guys can look those up on your own. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 through 3 is what we're going to focus on. First thing we'll notice, verse 1. He says, the difference between people is those who are spiritual and those who are carnal. Carnal is the same Greek word for fleshly or of the flesh. We read about that last week. Walking in sin is walking in the flesh. That's what being in the flesh means. That's what being carnal means. And he says that if you're a babe in Christ, that means you're still carnal. In other words, you're, you're a believer, you're saved, but you're still walking in a lot of ways in the flesh. You're still, you're still in a lot of sin. There's not a lot of repentance in your life, and that's immaturity. That's what he says. That's being a babe in Christ. He says the alternative that we should be shooting for is to be spiritual. So what does it mean to be spiritual? The first thing he mentions in verse 2 is that you're able to receive solid food. And that's about your understanding. So I mentioned on the, the first part of point four, to be spiritual is to understand spiritual things. Hebrews 5.13 speaks of being skilled in the word as being able to di digest solid food. So the more you're able to understand the word, which is a spiritual book, then the more mature you would be spiritually. That's one side of it. So the first side of being spiritual is your understanding of the word of God. Second thing in verse 3, he says, you're still carnal, and he says, because of envy, strife, and divisions among you. So he speaks to a type of sin. He mentions envy, strife, and division. Which tells us on the second part of that fourth point, that living a life that's obedient to the Spirit and the Word would be maturity. But staying in sin like envy, strife, and division would be being carnal or being immature. So that leaves you with two things. Being spiritual is understanding the word and obeying it. Ultimately, a spiritual person, a mature person, somebody who understands the word and obeys it. Those are the two things. And I really want us to laser in on that because we throw around the word spiritual like it's really spooky. You guys know what I'm talking about? But the Bible speaks of it as very practical. It's the opposite of being in the flesh. If 
you're in the flesh, you're in sin, you have little understanding. If you're in the spirit and you're being spiritual, that means you understand the word and you obey it. And you'll grow in your understanding and you will grow in your obedience. Yes, do you have a question? So what's an example of being in the spirit? An example of being in the spirit is any time you read something in the word and obey it. That would be a spiritual action. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at Romans 8 real fast. Romans 8. And we'll read verse 5 first as it's written. Romans 8 verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So you'll notice two things. He's talking about living according to something and then setting your mind on something. So there's the actions or the obedience, and then there's the understanding, which is the two things that we just touched on. So in other words, if you're going to be obeying the flesh, the first thing you got to do is set your mind on fleshly things. But if you want to be obedient to the Spirit, then you have to set your mind on spiritual things. So that's why you have to have the understanding and obedience go together. Understanding is about what you set your mind on, what you study, what you meditate on, what you read, what you dig into. You set your mind on the Word, that will help you obey it. If you're not setting your mind on the Word, you're going to have a really hard time obeying it. Amen? One moment, Dan. Uh, then look at verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh. In other words, to not live according to the flesh. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I'll just read that verse again. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Whether you walk in the flesh or the Spirit, in other words, whether you repent or do not repent, is a life and death matter. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You stay in sin, you'll die in your sins. But if you kill sin, you'll live. That's the point. Is that regarding eternal life? Yeah, you will live, meaning eternal life, yes. But also, having what Jesus called abundant life and something you experience here is also connected to repentance as well. Life, generally speaking, will be better for you if you repent. If you stay in sin, it makes life hard. Uh, there's a proverb, Proverbs 13, 15 says, I believe it's Proverbs 13, 15, says that the way of, the tran the way of transgressors is hard. This is very straightforward and simple. If you're in sin, it makes life harder. Long story short. You can ask your question now. This will be a last okay. last question of yours okay. for a little while. If that's okay. Proverbs thirteen fifteen. Is it the same one? Did I quote it right? Uh, no. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Oh, yeah. That's that's thirteen fifteen. Okay. And NKJV. This is NKJV. Yeah. KJV says the way of transgressors is hard, but that says the way of the unfaithful. Did you have another question? Um, you know, I'll save that for later. Okay. All right. So. 
Then there's that bullet point under, under the fourth, fourth point there. Being carnal or staying in sin or staying in the flesh is what shows that we are still childish and immature. So, whether a person is spiritually mature or immature is about their repentance. Are they repenting of sin or not? If you see a person growing in their understanding of the word, growing in their obedience to the word, that shows maturity. It's not about how many miracles you can do. It's not about how many crazy emotional experiences you've had. It's not about how much you think you can prophesy or how much you speak in tongues every day. It's about whether you are repenting of sin or not. That shows maturity. Amen? Amen. Okay, point five. This is where we get down to what this looks like in terms of our community. As a church, we are tasked with helping each other repent from sin. So go to Galatians 6, verse 1. And this so RJ, this is where we'll address what you were mentioning earlier. Galatians 6, verse 1. It says, Brethren, if a man or a person is overtaken in, notice, any trespass, any sin, not just the big ones, not just the ones that are egregious, any trespass, you who are spiritual, there's that word again, you who are spiritual, now what does it mean to be spiritual? Pop quiz. And understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So look at those bullet points. Under point 5 says, if there is any sin that we notice in our lives, we should confess it to each other to gain help and accountability to repent. We won't read James 5.16, but that says confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. We should want to help each other repent from sin. We should want to do that. So let's just break down Galatians 6.1. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, so I mentioned any trespass already, so it doesn't matter big or small, any sin. So we have to look at what it means to be overtaken in it. If you look at, I believe it's 2 Peter 2, it's either verse 11 or verse 19, that says, by whom a person is overcome, by the same also he is brought into bondage. Overtaken or overcome, why don't we actually pull that up just to make sure that I don't get that verse wrong, because I want you guys to have the right reference. Um, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Yep. When they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. 
For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So being overtaken in something or overcome infers bondage. In other words, you become a slave to something. That's what you're looking at. So in a church setting, when you're referring to believers, a person being overtaken in any trespass would mean basically a sin that someone continues in. And they're not repenting of it on their own. Because at that point, they're overtaken. They're in bondage to something, right? And if you're, somebody's in bondage to something or they're enslaved to something, they're going to keep practicing it. So this doesn't mean every time you see somebody make a mistake, you got to go confront them, okay? This is talking about if somebody is stuck in a sin. Regardless of what it is, they're stuck in it. They're staying in it. That's the context in which he gives this instruction. Lisa, did you have a question or comment? microphone I'll just jump in and say so would would it be right for us as the body of Christ and a community to offer to pray for that absolutely we should definitely pray for each other for for that yes you should be able to just push it once you shouldn't have to hold it down okay That one's on. Okay. I think it's important to delineate the difference between the word sin and trespass. They're two different words, they're two different meanings. My understanding of the word trespass is actually a form of rebellion. You know what the law is, you know what the right thing to do is, and you choose rebelliously to do it anyway. Versus sin, we know that that is often translated as missing the mark, as in an archer's, we missed the mark. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of sin is that we don't even know we're doing it. We don't know what the law is, and we're doing it. We're inadvertently, I think we talked about this last week a little bit, that I need the community here to show me what my sin even is because I can't see it. I don't know I'm even doing it wrongly until somebody loves me enough to come up to me and say, Lisa, this is what I see you doing, and it's wrong. And so I think it's important that we delineate our sin because Jesus came and he died for not just our sin, our transgressions, and our iniquities. So I think it's important that we study out those different words and the different meanings um, going forth so we can be free from all of that. You're right, and then there's a difference in those words, but the Greek word, just to clarify the, the scripture we're reading, Galatians 6 verse 1, where it says, you see any man caught in any trespass, that Greek word simply means any error or fault. So this is all-encompassing, because every trespass, every sin, every iniquity is an error of some sort. So this is an all-encompassing word. Uh, yeah, used in Galatians 6, verse 1. Okay, now you have that second bullet point under point 5 that says, a person is restored from a sin when they repent from it, or in other words, when they stop the sin. That's the restoration. Go back to 6, verse 1 in Galatians. So we covered overtaken, that means they're stuck 
in a particular pattern of sin. You who are spiritual, in other words, you have understanding and you yourself are in obedience. Restore that person. In other words, bring them, help, help bring them to the place where they stop the sin. Do it in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So let's go to point number six. We're going to define what it means to restore a person in more detail. How do you actually do that? We know that a person is restored when they stop the sin. Because you're taking a person who is on the right path, they got off. Now they're on a wrong one. Restoring them is getting them back to the right one. Right? You have a believer. They're on the right path. They're saved. They get into sin. They're going the wrong direction. Redirect them back to the truth. Get them on the right way again. That's, that's restoration. So how do you correct a person in order to restore them? That's what we're covering. At first bullet point. Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5, we'll go there next. Make sure you're not a hypocrite if, if you're doing that. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, start in verse 3. I'm not going to get get into verses 1 and 2 right now because that would require a lot more explanation. But he's talking about a form of judgment. Inside the church, we have authority to expose sin. So then he gets into verse 3 and says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Most people, when they look at verse 1 that says, judge not lest you be judged, they forget that the end of the passage, Jesus says, no, the point is that you can remove specks from each other's eyes. You should be able to do that. Amen? But you have to remove the plank from your own eye first. The point is that if you're going to go to a person and help them repent from a sin, if you have sin that you are not taking steps to repent of, and you know it, and other people know it, that's a plank in your eye, and you shouldn't be doing that. Otherwise, that is unrighteous judgment. That's being a hypocrite. So, part of being spiritual to restore somebody who is walking in a way that's carnal means you have a show of repentance in your own life. Because if you go to a person in sin as a hypocrite, that disqualifies you. Because you're not doing it for yourself first. So, if you want to help somebody with some sin in their life, you should be able to show you're doing something about your own. This doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have completely solved every sin issue, because of course we're all growing through things, we're all learning to overcome things. That's not what this is talking about. Removing the plank is about the process of repenting from your sin. And people should know that you're doing that. And Dan, to your point earlier about what this has looked in my life as an example, there's been a number of things. Uh, when I first started walking with the Lord, the first thing I remember having to repent of was anger. That came first. That was the first thing that I remember convicting me. And that took... I would say probably a, a couple months. I was 
14, 15 years old, I believe at the time. And that took prayer. That took a lot of prayer. I'd have an outburst. I'd go to the word. I'd read the word about it. I would pray. I'd ask God for help. And I would do better progressively until it got to the point where it's no longer in my life anymore. It's dead. It's killed, completely killed. Now, something I'm learning to repent of now is impatience. That's something that I'm learning to repent of right now. I'm repenting of it. I'm studying the topic of patience. I'm growing in that patience. Another thing that I'm working on is making sure that my attitude is right when I receive correction. I want, I want it to be received lovingly. I want to I wanna regard it as a gesture of love. And I've been studying uh, Psalms uh, 145 that says, let the righteous strike me and it will be a kindness to me, right? So I've been meditating on that, putting that into practice, same with patience. I'm repenting of things. I'm growing in things. And in example, in uh, the house church that my wife and I lead, those that are in that group know that those are things that I'm working on. We share with each other the things that we're working on. So that because of that accountability, people know there's, a, there's repentance in my life. And that's what puts me in the position where I can go to somebody else and say, hey, I see this going on. And I don't have to worry about somebody or this said person thinking that I'm a hypocrite because I'm open about confessing what my sin is too. Right? That's one of the reasons why James 5 says confess your sins to one another. It not only helps you have the accountability to repent yourself, but it also gives you credibility because people know hey, this person is being real about their sin and they're confessing and repenting from it, so I know they're not a hypocrite. That gives you a voice in someone's life if you want to help correct them. And that is one of the reasons why we have to make sure that we confess our sins so that we're not a hypocrite. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7. So that first bullet point, make sure you're not a hypocrite. Second one. Galatians 6.1 says this, go to the person with a gentle spirit, not out of emotion, which is impulse or frustration. You should not be trying to correct or expose someone's sin if you're doing so emotionally. shouldn't be a reaction. This happens all the time, oftentimes in our household, with our family. Somebody does something wrong and we react because of how it irks us or how it frustrates us or whatever it may be. If you're going to correct, it says it should be done out of a spirit of gentleness, which means you're calm, you're collected, you're not impulsive, you're able to say what a fault is without getting emotional. That's a gentle spirit. And that also shows love to a person. One moment. Yeah, one moment. So Galatians 6.1, just to read that again so you have how he reads it. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, which means you are not going to be able to restore a person if you're not doing so in gentleness. Now, sometimes you do have to speak more authoritatively or speak more sharply. That's why it says in a spirit of gentleness. So it's, it's in your heart. It's in your behavior. Although sometimes we do have to speak sternly, but it's not emotional. Without that standing in gentleness, you can't restore a person. Otherwise, as Proverbs says, hatred stirs up strife. Soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So if you're speaking emotionally when you're trying to correct somebody, that turns into harsh words, and harsh words actually stir up more sin 
when your intention might be to help the person to stop sinning, but you're making it worse because you're reacting emotionally. Amen. Amen. So you have to make sure your standing is in a spirit of gentleness, otherwise you will not be able to restore a person. One moment, RJ had a comment, and then you can ask your question. Do you have a comment? Question? question? Yeah, can we get a microphone to him? In your example, when you were saying we're in a family dynamic, mm -hmm. and somebody has something, and we respond emotionally, and then not thinking it through, isn't that a perfect time to repent? Yes. Isn't that yeah. a perfect example of repentance, so mm -hmm. that that doesn't fester and come again so we don't keep repeating and practicing that sin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It's a great opportunity also to create more deeper relationship with your spouse too. Just apologize, repent, move on. You know? Amen? Okay. So, yes, Baker. Is it fair to say that the Holy Spirit is the main convictor of sin and that it should be the exception and not the rule for us to be correcting people because most of us are not in a place where you haven't removed the the timber, and it's better to keep your mouth shut and just to say little and just encourage people to be in the Word, and then there'll be little correction that's needed. That would be awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if. So I, I get what you're saying. So what it comes down to is that if we all were really good at listening to the Holy Spirit and the Word, yeah, we wouldn't need to correct each other. We would just read the word and we'd be convicted and we would do it. Amen. That would be awesome if that were the reality. But the fact that that's not the reality is the reason why Galatians 6.1 says, hey, if you see somebody overtaken, snared up in a sin and they're not repenting and you're not a hypocrite, hey, you should go try to restore them. And there are qualifications. So you can't just have anybody doing this, you know. Got to make sure it's done in a spirit of gentleness. Got to make sure that they're a spiritual person doing it. So it's going to be, a, generally speaking, a smaller number of people who are going to be able to correct someone biblically. But it should be happening because of the reality that there are times when we get caught up in sin. Yes. Microphone. Being someone who has been corrected effectively recently... Um, I can speak about on this and say that if I was being obedient to God and listening to him, then I wouldn't have needed to be corrected, right? So it took somebody else, strength, who I trust, and correct me to go, oh, wow, I need to change. Mm -hmm. I, I, I need to be free from this. And mm -hmm. when I received that correction, I also received deliverance mm -hmm. that I'm now identifying two weeks later because I received the correction I honestly believe in receiving that freely as painful as it was in the process embarrassing painful you know it brought me freedom and today I, I feel like I'm delivered because of it amen thank you for sharing amen that is a testimony the Bible says correct a wise man and he will still be wiser it also says rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. So there's also, <laughs> there's, also a, there's also a proverb. This is my paraphrase of it that my dad and I would throw around. And I, don't, I actually only know the paraphrase. I don't remember what it actually says in the Bible. Um, but we'd always say, throw a fool through a wood chipper and he still won't repent. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not what it says. It says something about 
you know, old world farm tools and whatever. Um, oh, uh, you can't, even if you grind a fool in a, what is it called? The mortar and a pestle. That's what it is. Yeah, you grind a fool in the mortar and a pestle and you still won't repent. And then we would always say, throw him through a wood chipper and he won't even, yeah. So, in other words, responding to rebuke, hearing it and obeying it shows wisdom. It was very wise of Dina to receive the, whatever that correction was. And it's made her wiser. That's why rebuke is so powerful. Do you have a question? Yeah. Well, question, comment with what RJ was saying, and thank you, Dina, that this is where we're supposed to consider pure joy when we face these trials, and especially with our spouses. If, if we're triggered, I believe that that is God wanting to bring healing to that place so that we're no longer triggered and can act appropriately to grow up into that maturity that mm -hmm. we are all wanting to do to mm -hmm. become more like Christ in every way. So mm -hmm. we could praise God, just like last week when I spoke, so it's like this, this really happened, and I'm sorry, and God granted me that repentance and has changed my heart. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a perfect example of what you've been teaching, and we, we get to do it. We don't have to do it. We get to. Yeah, that's why it says, let the righteous strike me, and it'll be a kindness. It's a good thing. And yeah. like she said, the triggers... Once I received the correction, repented, and truly changed my mind that I didn't want that anymore, those triggers are no longer, they're not haunting me anymore. Like, I had this chaos in my mind where before I received this correction, I was constantly had this chaos going, and just bing, 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 trigger, trigger, trigger. And then when I received the correction and repented it from it, a week later, I'm identifying all these areas where I was like, wow, I was, I was stood strong. I, was, I feel like that repentance brought me the strength and the fervitude and the peace in my heart to allow me to stand strong and come against the tricks of the enemy. Mm -hmm. and, and those little things are no longer triggering me. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah. So it's supposed to happen. It is. It is supposed to happen. Yep. Third bullet point. After we just read, do it with a gentle spirit. It says, this is based on Matthew 18, 15, which we'll turn to next. Explain to them what their sin is using the word. This is really, really important. Go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you. Now, let's just pause on that because your brother sinning against you, your brother is somebody who's in the church. We are members of one another, right? Brothers and sisters. Any sin from one believer against any believer is a sin against the church because we're members of one another. Amen? So, when Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, this doesn't mean it just has to be a personal thing. This is, if there's any sin that a brother is in, it's against God first and it's ultimately against the church because we should see ourselves as joined together. We're part of one body, right? So then he says, if you see that happening, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And then he gets into a process of how you continue in this confrontation if, if it continues to escalate. But notice that Tell him his fault. This is kind of a side note. That does not mean, if you look at it in Greek, 
just going to a person saying, hey, you're doing this and I don't like it. <laughs> That's not what it means. It's yeah, it's direct, all right. <laughs> Telling a person their fault in the Greek, it actually means explaining what their sin is. Yeah. Using the word, right? That's what Titus 1 verse 9 says, so turn there next. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 Titus 1 verse 9 says, Hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. Convict is talking about exposing or confronting sin. In other words, you have to be taught and hold fast to the faithful word. This is the word of God in order to be able to correct somebody with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is, is a solid understanding of the word. So, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This means go and explain to him what the sin is based on the word. You should not be correcting somebody who's a believer if you do not have scripture. If you do not have scripture, don't do it. Because otherwise, it's coming from your head. And that's it. It's not coming from God. And even if you know it's somewhere in the Bible that I think it says this, and I think you're guilty. No. <laughs> Go do your homework first. Come on, guys. This is a serious deal. If you, if, you want, if you actually want to restore somebody, and you want it to be God and the Spirit who convicts them, because that's the point. To Ron's point, it is the spirit and the word that convicts. And God can do that through you if you have the word. If you don't have the word, he can't do that. Otherwise, and the person will probably think it's just coming from you. Well, I don't have to listen to what they say. It's just their opinion. Okay? That's what's going to happen. We've all been there. Right? You've got to have the word. You have to hold fast the faithful word. Bring scripture to a person. Everything you, sh you say should come from the word of God. <laughs> corner them. <laughs> right. Exactly. Jesus did this. If you want to read about how the, how Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he was just machine gunning the word at them. He used their own scriptures and he was really good at it. Yes. Um, so when my children were little and I had to correct them, these were the questions I would ask them. What did you do wrong? Why was it wrong? And what are you going to do to fix it? And that's kind of how this whole process goes, you know, understanding what the sin is, why is it wrong using the scripture, and mm -hmm. then how are you going to fix it through repentance or apologizing to the person you offended or, you know, repaying something, you, you know, whatever, you know, the recourse would be. Um, but I think those questions are useful for us as children growing and learning in Christ and in our faith. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, notice that um, as an example of that, there's in Titus 1, 9, it says both to exhort and convict, which tells you that when you want to correct a person, typically you start with rebuke, but you want to end with exhortation because correction hurts and it's supposed to, it's supposed to. Oh, thank you. Um, it is correction. Yeah, there's a Hebrews 12, 11 says no correction or no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but rather painful. But afterward, 
It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if it's correction, truly, it is going to hurt. It's supposed to. And because it hurts, you typically want to, you know, metaphorically or literally, give the person a hug afterwards, right? In other words, you, a person should be comforted, exhorted after you give them a correction so they walk away from it knowing, okay, this person loves me, right? Like they're not doing this spitefully, right? So that's why you use the word to do it so they know it's coming from God and you finish with exhortation so they walk away comforted, right? Okay, so then let's go to that fourth bullet point underneath point number six. If they change their ways or if they repent, Jesus says back to Matthew 18, you have gained your brother. If he hears you, you have gained your brother, which means it's possible that you will have not gained your brother. This is actually a scary thing when you think about it, because this infers, especially if you keep reading in Matthew 18, if this brother, this person does not hear you and therefore they continue in sin, they're only driving themselves not only further away from you and the body of Christ, but further away from that intimacy with God. It's going to harm them in the long run spiritually. So we have to remember that this is, this is about preserving people's lives, their souls. This is a life and death issue. And it starts with little sin that just grows and festers. And if it continues without a person being corrected or repenting, it creates a very dangerous scenario. So that's why he says, hey, if you go and correct a person on their sin and they hear you, they really listen to you, you've gained them. This is, you've, you've won somebody back to the truth. And that's a really powerful thing. Yes. David, let's say I continue to sin against my husband with my words. Can I now go back to him and tell him what I want to do next time there's a correction that needs to be made? Do I go repent to him and say, okay, you know what, I've done this all wrong. I would encourage that. Yeah, tell somebody. Yeah, that's why he says confess your sins to one another. You know, you shouldn't wait for somebody else to tell you. If you know what you're doing wrong, yeah, confess it. Of course, if you know that it's wrong. And then I tell him the new way that I want to approach it. Yeah, and then you can have the accountability to, to help you. Exactly. Yep. All right, let's go to that fifth fifth bullet point. Hold on, just one thing. Is that yeah. is that them being restored, like in Galatians one six one? Yes. Yep. If he hears you, then the, the way that you know he heard you is ultimately that he changes. Yeah. Bullet point number five: the work of helping a person repent is of eternal value. It saves people from death. Go to James chapter five. Verse 19. These are the last two verses of James 5. This is what he finishes the epistle with. Brethren, if anyone, anyone among you wanders from the truth, not just the popular people in the church, not just the leaders, not just the senior pastor, anyone because everyone is an essential part of the body of Christ. Amen? You have a place that no one else can hold because God created you uniquely. You are part of the church if you belong to Jesus. So if anyone wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is a work of the kingdom of God to turn somebody back. Mm -hmm. 
Tremendous opportunity, yes, exactly. Because this is interesting because he's referring to brethren. So he's talking to believers here. And he's telling believers, if you turn your brother back from error to the truth, you save his soul from death. Well, this is interesting because if they're already saved, then their soul is already saved from death. The reason why he writes it this way is because if a person continues in sin without repenting, what happens? They keep going, right? They get hardened slowly. They start to get calloused. And if nobody says anything and they just keep going for whatever reason, they're not being sensitive to the convictions of the spirit. They just keep sinning. Nobody confronts them on it. That puts them in danger. A person can, can lose their salvation if they, if they deny Christ through being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews says. If they get hardened enough that in their actions they deny the Savior, that's a very, very dangerous place to be. So that's why he says, brethren, talking to believers, if you bring somebody back to the truth, you save a soul from death. That's how God views it. God views it as you saving somebody from hell. He doesn't view it as just, oh, you helped somebody do a little better. This is a very big deal to him. And so that he says to, to think about it with that kind of severity. And then you cover a multitude of sins. In other words, you, you bring healing to so many areas. You, you cover transgressions through forgiveness so that you don't have to, they don't have to keep bringing up that record of wrongs. Through that forgiveness, you help a person to walk moving forward, not constantly regretting what they did. They can be free. They can live a new life, not lingering in condemnation and guilt. You're covering a multitude of sins. And that's part of how we show love. Uh, Proverbs says love covers a multitude of sins, but he repeats a matter, separates close friends. You keep bringing stuff up. You're going to separate people, but if you cover it, say, I forgive you, your new creation, move forward. That's love. That's what it means to cover a multitude of sins. Yes. Yes, that's why... Um that's why it's important to continually stay in the word because your soul can be if you if you start to feed the flesh, your soul can be um, your soul can be converted back to old ways. That's why you have to continually renew your mind and read the word every day because your because it is it's what you feed your soul that determines how your soul is going to keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you renew, renewing your mind is key in addition with repentance because that, that keeps you secure. Um, secure in the faith. I just want to read real quick a... Did I miss a hand, by the way? Did anyone else have a... Oh, two over here. Okay. You can go first. Yeah. So, um, let's... So, in James 5, when it talks about, like, a brother who's gone astray, Hebrews 10 talks about, like, in verse 26, for if we willfully sin after received the knowledge of truth, there's no... So, should I talk to you about that after? Because I have a lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that after. When you were talking about a multitude of sins, um, the way I used to read that, and correct me, give me correction, because I want it, is if we can take a brother and save their soul from death and stop a multitude of sins, if they go back and lose their salvation and go back into the world and they start sinning, they can influence a tremendous amount of people, mm -hmm. which is a multitude of sins. Mm -hmm. Is that what you said I just missed it? So or is it's, that different? That's a little bit different. Okay. So, that's, it's not far. It's close, though. So covering a multitude of sins, think about it this way. If a person, before they get saved, you know, they're living in sin. Everyone is in sin before they're saved. Those sins mount up 
And the Bible refers to that as storing or treasuring up wrath. So a person, if they keep sinning, the longer they stay in sin, the more this wrath bucket fills up. When they die, that bucket gets poured out on them. That's what hell is. And that's the multitude of sins. If somebody gets saved and forgiven, you empty that bucket, those sins are covered. They're no longer going to result in wrath for them in the day of judgment because it's forgiven. And forgotten, forgotten. right. So a person who's saved, they get into sin. And let's say they don't repent. If they keep sinning to the point where they harden their heart unto denying their salvation, Mm -hmm. then that's a multitude of sins that is going to become wrath for them. They're filling the bucket up, right? So it's similar for a believer in the sense that if a person ends up denying their salvation, you have that multitude of sins poured out on them. But if their soul is saved from death, or in other words, they're restored to the way of the truth, then you're covering that and they get a fresh start or they, they stay in that fresh start, I should say. Does that make sense? Yes. So you're, it is, it's, an, it's of eternal value, right? That's the point. There's a, it's a serious life and death issue, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. Wouldn't that also apply relationally? Like, for instance, if I love my kids or my spouse truly and my focus is to love them, then I can, that love for them can overlook their small flaws until they have the ability, to, until that is dealt with, till that sin is dealt with. And I've, I've applied that scripture into that area because when you love somebody and you look at them with love, you can overlook their sins against you mm-hmm. when you really love yep. them. Yep, that as well. It's also a part of covering. You can overlook it. Because if God doesn't hold a person's sins against them in Christ, then nor should we. That's part of covering it, right? You don't keep repeating it and bringing it up again and holding it against them. Part of forgiveness is forgetting it, moving on, you know? You treat them as if they had not sinned. That's because that's, that's how God treats us. Right? Treats us as if we had never sinned um, in terms of our identity, you know. And that's part of covering sin. Yeah. Amen. Okay. Any additional or final questions or comments back here? What's the basis, scripturally or otherwise, that denominations use to say once saved, always saved? I know that's a can of That's a massive question. Just open the can a little bit. Um, I'll just... Do the little, where you just pop it just a little bit, and you get the burst of air, and then you just leave it. Um, effervescence. Uh, yeah, yeah, the effervescence, yeah. I'll just untwist the cap so the, the pop thing will go up, and then just leave it there. Um, so there's one scripture such as Jesus in John 10 saying about his sheep, I know those who are my own, nothing will snatch them out of my hand. So he states there that those who are his flock, his sheep, which would be believers, nothing can steal them, which seems to imply that they cannot be lost. And the explanation of that is basically that when or if a person denies their own salvation, because they have to have a choice, they are treated as if they were never his sheep. Basically, that's what it means. Another ver- a verse that affirms that is Matthew 7, where Jesus said, people have come to him and who have worked many signs and wonders and prophesied and cast out demons in his name. And they'll say, Lord, we did all these works in your name. And Jesus said, I never knew you because you practiced lawlessness. In other words, there was a point 
when they were doing works for God's kingdom. Then they got into sin or lawlessness. They hardened their heart, denied their salvation. Then they go to Jesus thinking they're still okay. And he treats them as if he never knew them. And that's what's happening. But scriptures such as that one in John 10 where Jesus says, Nobody will, nothing will snatch them out of my hand. Those are scriptures that are used for what we call the doctrine of eternal security, which is where people think that you just you don't even have to worry that you can sin as much as you want and you'll still be okay. But of course, we know the Bible doesn't teach you can sin as much as you want. You're saved by grace, You're saved by grace. right? So, so I'll, I'll stop it there. There's plenty of other scriptures we could look at. Maybe we'll get into that in detail someday. But what we're supposed to focus on for now, if I just summarize all these points, Jesus gave you the Spirit to help you stop sinning. You're to be serious about repenting from all sin. You'll be mature the more you repent from sin. You should want to be spiritual, live a life that's obedient to the Word and the Spirit. We should help each other repent from sin, and we should know how to do it. That's basically what this is about. Yeah. You know, I'm just trying to summarize my takeaway. Mm -hmm. It takes humility to repent have to be humble to be able to repent and if we're not if we're reading the word and we're not getting it so to speak just because of where we are in our spiritual growth God will send people to get us to that point to point things out to us yeah but even with that it takes humility for someone to point out your sin because they have to address what's going on in their life. Am I hearing? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's totally valid. Yeah. There are times when you don't see stuff on your own and God uses people to point those things out. Absolutely. Yes. I should just say, like, for, for me, what I felt that was the most effective thing, not only was in I in a place of desperation that I knew I needed to be free, Mm -hmm. But when I was receiving the correction, the place that it was coming from was, I have been here, and I want to see you become free, and therefore I have seen the result of repentance in, in my life, and because I care for you, and because I have went from death to life by following my, this action, the, the correction came from a place of love. I want to see you free. I, I want to see you have what I now have. And the only way that you're going to get there is by me telling you that there is real change that will happen after you repent. Mm -hmm. And when I knew that this is going to give me a result, I'm going to receive the result that I need from this. It was all done in love. And that's what brought the, that was what helped me to be able to receive it and it's it's and all of it come together and the freedom happened after yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Absolutely. Final questions, comments? I got one more question. Yep. Um, um number two on your sheet where it says that we are to repent of all sin, we should not condone any sin in our lives. Mm -hmm. Is that us personally, or because there are people in our lives that are sinning, that might not be a brother. Can you just talk about that a little bit? The our is, lives. Is, is my question clear? Yes, the question is clear. Okay. Yeah. We're only responsible for ourselves in the church. So brothers and sisters in ourselves. 
Yeah, the Bible says we have no business judging those who are outside the church, which is unbelievers, because it says those who are outside, God judges. That's God's job. If they're in the church, if they're in the church, they are a member of the body you are a member of, which makes you inseparably attached to them, which means you are in part responsible for their life, just as they are for yours. You, of course, are most responsible for your own life. So don't just get so laser focused on other people that you're not considering yourself anymore. So, you know, take that into account. But if they're a part of the church, the Bible says we actually have authorization from God to, it actually says, judge between brothers, which means we're responsible for helping people repent, you know, and exposing and confronting their sin. So we should repent of all sin in our lives individually, yes, and we shouldn't condone sin in the church either. So we shouldn't look at somebody who's in sin and say, ah, oh, well, now nah, they'll figure it out. If we know it's there, we know they're not doing anything about it, and we see it, we should do something about it. We shouldn't want to condone that. So if yeah. they're out of the church, then we should disciple that person. Yeah, it's a different relationship because they're, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Get him saved. So the. Go ahead, Connie. Um, so David. Yeah. If I'm in a marriage with an unbeliever, the best thing I can do is my actions. Your conduct. Yep. First Peter three. Don't correct. Just leave them. If a person does not have any respect for the word, Proverbs says, "Do not rebuke a scoffer, otherwise he'll hate you." Yeah. So if somebody has no respect for the word, you can't use the word. Okay. Most you can do is your conduct. Okay, thank yeah. you. Uh, going back to what he said with the unbeliever thing, um, yeah. I feel like you condone your sin if you practice sin. That's you accepting it or saying that, yeah, if believers think it's okay to sin, that's condoning sin to a non-believer. That's something mm. not to do. Yeah, yeah. There's another product that says that a righteous man who falters before the wicked is uh, as a poison spring in a polluted well. So if you 